to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukman, sitting in for Sean Blackman, and as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about the upcoming Senate vote to attempt to codify Roe versus Wade, an upcoming summit between the United States government and leaders from Southeast Asian countries, and a new documentary chronicling the life and work of friend of the show, Daryl Lamont Jenkins and the One People's Project. And later in the show, starting at 3.20 p.m. Eastern time, we'll be opening the phone lines to you. But before we even move on... The 2022 midterms are getting a little preview in some of the primary races in Nebraska and West Virginia that happened just yesterday. Donald J. Trump-backed candidate Alex Mooney resoundingly defeated Representative David McKinley in West Virginia in the first incumbent versus incumbent primary race of 2022. But Trump-backed candidate Charles Herbster lost his bid for candidate for governor in Nebraska. Now, the win for Trump's choice, Mooney, is seen as an indictment against Biden's bipartisanship and could be a harbinger of doom for that kind of rhetoric being used on the campaign trail. Trump's America does not abide bipartisanship, and they made that clear in a Mooney ad that declared liberal David McKinley sided with Biden's trillion dollar spending spree. McKinley is actually a Republican, but not Republican enough for Trump supporters, which shouldn't have come as a surprise to anyone who understands the stranglehold Trump has on the Republican Party. But Joe Biden was just shocked by it. I never expected, let me say, let me say this carefully, I never expected the ultra MAGA Republicans who seem to control the Republican Party now to have been able to control the Republican Party. Biden said. If Biden is unclear about this at this point, the Democrats are doomed in the midterms. However, it wasn't all gravy for Trump candidates, but probably not because of Trump as much as his candidate was an entire mess. In the Nebraska primaries for candidates for the governor's race, Trump-backed Charles W. Herbster lost a three-way race in what he called a proxy war between the entire Republican establishment and the former President Trump. Even though Herbster invoked the name of Trump at every opportunity he could, and he even appeared with him at a rally, none of that could save Herbster from accusations of groping and unwanted contact from multiple women in the final weeks of the race. Given the choice of a Trump candidate with a problem with keeping his hands to himself and any other conservative, the voters in Nebraska basically just chose another conservative. Whether the voters in the upcoming midterms are looking for the Trump brand in candidates or not, it's not looking good for Biden and the Democrats. And I know it makes absolutely no sense that harping on the paltry spending of the infrastructure bill would resonate with some voters while Biden makes it rain on Ukraine with all our health care, student loan relief, COVID relief and affordable housing money. But I think it just confirms that Biden's strategy of dragging this proxy war in Ukraine out to some imagined weakening of Russia to make him look like the big man on the imperialist campus it isn't working in the states. It won't work in the midterms, just like it's not working in Ukraine. The midterms are going to be a shameful embarrassment for the Democrats, I'm afraid. 
And I can't say I'm sorry about it. The New York Times is reporting that senior strategist for Senator John McCain's 2008 presidential campaign said that he had lied to discredit a New York Times article that reported on John McCain's close relationship with a female lobbyist, a claim that the candidate, his wife, and the campaign swore were just lies, lies, and terrible liberal lies after the story was published. But apparently it wasn't because Steve Schmidt said in a Substack post that, quote, immediately following the story's publication, John and Cindy McCain both lied to the American people. Schmidt wrote, adding, ultimately, John McCain's lie became mine. Oh, why, why? I feel so sorry for you. Oh, do tell, though, Steve. And oh, he did. Schmidt said in his post that he didn't want to do anything to compromise John McCain's honor. But then he questioned McCain's judgment in choosing the relatively unknown governor of Alaska, Sarah Palin, as his running mate and accused McCain of cowering before her, saying that he was terrified of the creature that he created. And Schmidt also said that McCain had privately acknowledged the affair with lobbyist Vicki Eisman to him after the time published its article saying, quote, John McCain told me the truth backstage at an event in Ohio. But McCain and his wife went on television and repudiated the story and Schmidt in not wanting to tarnish the complete facade of the morally upright maverick John McCain went right along with it. For the first time since she's been visible in public media, John McCain's daughter, Meghan McCain, has no comment on the bombshell admission. Why do I bring this up? Because this is yet another example of the people surrounding politicians who keep their dirty little secrets from the public while propping up these false narratives about these people as paragons of virtue for votes. Let's stop idealizing politicians and their handlers. Let's defend the lives of the people they destroy with their policies instead. And let's start by getting rid of every Democrat who sat on their hands for nearly 20 years before they decided to bother with trying to codify Roe versus Wade. It's time to clean house of all of them. Follow Luke Ma Nation on Patreon.com slash Luke Ma Nation for lots of great content. And those are today's talking points. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. And we're going to keep the movement moving on, as they say, and we are happy to be joined for this conversation about the potential uh, Senate vote to codify Roe versus Wade with Lillian House, writer for Breaking the Chains magazine and organizer with the Answer Coalition in Colorado. Lillian, thanks so much for joining me. Hey, Jackie. Glad to be here. Glad you're here to talk about this issue as well. Uh, The Senate apparently is expected to vote uh, today on the Women's Health Protection Act, uh, which is a Democrat-led bill that would effectively codify a right to an abortion. But this effort is seen as largely symbolic because the Democrats don't seem to have enough support 
And they claim from Republicans, but I feel like there's some lack of support among the Democrats uh, to reach this 60 vote threshold needed to pass this bill. So I'm wondering if you can give us some background on this uh, bill, the Women's Health Protection Act, and where this potential vote uh, really is in regard to the landscape in the Democratic Party. Yeah. Well, so the Women's Health Protection Act that's up for a vote today, um, it is a bill that, if passed, would enshrine the right to abortion into law. So it would basically eliminate the whole question over the Supreme Court's ruling, um, which we know, you know, right now is looking like they're going to overturn Roe. And people all over the country are are really alarmed and up in arms about this. And so it would eliminate, you know, that issue altogether. And what it would do also is um, everywhere in the country, it would end the unevenness where women and are under attack um, by their state legislatures. It would nullify legislation that impinges upon a woman's right to get an abortion. Um, and so this is legislation that is obviously being demanded by the public. Seventy two percent of people support the right to abortion. Um, and so the the Women's Health Protection Act, you know, it, it has been um, voted on previously and failed in the Senate. It's been brought up again. Um, you know, it's already passed in the House. So it's, it's up for the Senate to um, get through, but the Senate is already, you know, the Democrats in the Senate are already saying it's a done deal. They can't do it. Um, it's doomed to fail, which really leads you to ask, okay, well, what are they doing it for? Um, and they're doing it because they want to mark, you know, who stood with women and who didn't so they can cash in on that and use it, um, as an electoral strategy. And they have no intention of passing this vital legislation. And there are hundreds of millions of women whose essential autonomy is on the line, not just their safety, of course, their safety, their futures, but also their their very personhood, their ability to exist as equals in society is on the line. And the Democrats are bringing this to a vote simply to mark where people stand. They have no intention of fighting for it. And this is all the more outrageous because they, of course, have a majority in the House and the Senate, and they control the White House. Um, but yeah, they can't even get a simple majority with their own party. Um, they certainly aren't doing the legwork to, you know, whip votes in the other party. And um, then, you know, they're also not even discussing if they get a simple majority, then they would have to tackle the filibuster because they wouldn't have 60 votes. And this is, a, you know, an absurd, archaic rule that says that, you know, they need to get a 60 vote majority to pass something through the Senate instead of just a 50 vote majority. So everything that isn't watered down enough to get bipartisan support um, and get a 60 vote count doesn't go through and they should just overturn this rule because basically it, it eliminates anything that people actually need that, you know, reasonably in the interest of the people. And they have said they're not going to touch the filibuster, this ridiculous rule. So um, basically they're saying to, that today's vote is, you know, don't get your hopes up. We can't do anything about it. We're throwing up our hands. And all that you can do 
is a vote in November. And if you if you care about your rights, you want to see those protected, well, then you'd better race to the polls, march to the polls. And, you know, Lillian, I can't help but go back to the first two years of the Obama presidency when was the last time I can think of in near history where the Democrats were in not only the same position where they control the White House, the Senate and Congress, but actually had a supermajority and could have done this, could have passed this a bill or a bill like it and codified Roe versus Wade into law, but it wasn't done. And and a lot of other things weren't done in in that, you know, magical period of time where the Democrats really almost had a blank slate uh, to do whatever the people put them in office to do. And it just wasn't done. So here we are, however many decades later, still having to deal with not the Republican Party, which is the obvious foil, right? Because this is the narrative that we get from the Democrats, that it's it's the Republicans that are keeping us from doing these things. We can't pass this legislation because the Republicans won't vote for this legislation. But the fact is, there are some, quote unquote, anti-abortion Democrats uh, who will not vote for this legislation. And this again, it could have been avoided if in the Obama presidency, something would have been done then. So, I mean, what what do you have to say to people who 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 constantly focus on, you know, it's the Republicans fault uh, or, you know, it's it's this particular. No, this is actually the result of, of a long history of Democratic uh, of failures to do anything that people want, Lillian. Yeah, Jackie, I am like, I'm so glad that you brought up that point because I don't know that people are really that conscious of this uh, moment in history where during the Obama administration, especially like in the first two years of of Obama's administration when he enjoyed, you know, vast public support. um, And there was a solid majority in the House and Senate um, to the Democrats, they could have done whatever was demanded and or whatever you know was needed by the people and of course we know that this uh war against women and against abortion rights has been going on for decades since the start of roe and that this you know that the need to codify abortion rights into law was of course very real back then as well and they sat by and did nothing um and, you know, that is just such an utter disgrace. And I think that it shows that these people, you know, whatever party that they're in, these so-called representatives of ours in Washington, they actually have no interest or connection to our, you know, concerns. Um, they, that's not what they're doing when they're in office. They, even when they have all of the power, they're not interested in carrying forward our concerns, our needs. And what they really want in this dynamic with the, you know, as you said so well with the Republicans as a foil, it works so well for them because they just play off of that and they, you know, they sit back and they actually carry out the the, uh, concerns of the corporations that are, you know, patting their pockets and making sure they get back in office. Um, But in the meantime, they just tell us that, oh, look how bad these other guys are. If you don't elect us again, you're going to be stuck with them. 
And meanwhile, you know, these rights of ours that are absolutely critical to the way that we live, um, to whether we live, is, you know, that's that's our business to just keep demanding and screaming about and hoping that, you know, they'll do something. And it's so utterly insulting for these Democrats to be saying, you know, with their record of sitting on their hands um, for, you know, the five decades since Roe was passed and has been, you know, clearly vulnerable as evident by the right wing attacks on it, you know, in many different forms since that time. Um that the Democrats sat on their hands this entire time, and then they tell us when, you know, we're very clearly at the point when abortion rights might be overturned across the country, that uh, they can't do anything, and we'd better, you know, if we want to see our rights protected, they literally said, you march to the polls, march to the polls, and they sent out mass texts to sweep up donations and say, you know, hurry, rush, emergency, donate $15 to the DNC. You know, that that is their orientation. They're sitting back, they're cashing in, and meanwhile, there are tens of thousands of women in the streets who are, you know, urgently taking action because they understand just how dire the situation is and what it could mean for them if the Supreme Court goes forward with what they have, you know, clearly uh, designed to do. Yeah, and, uh, you know, a part of this whole struggle for reproductive uh, autonomy, reproductive rights in this country, uh, of course, is a gender issue. But I feel like it's a, it's also a class issue, Lillian, because not only do we have male politicians, <clears throat> cis male politicians like Joe Manchin uh, deciding that uh, the Women's Health Protection Act is too broad and he doesn't want to support that. Uh, but we also have Basically, members of the Congress of Millionaires like Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski, who are Republicans, who claim they support abortion rights, but they believe that the Women's Health Protection Act goes, quote unquote, too far for them and that they will be voting no for uh, the act. So I I really feel like this is a, a bunch of rich people who have no conception about the struggle conception. I didn't mean to use that word, but out it came. Who have no conception of the struggles of the working class and the poor to have control over their own reproduction. And I'm wondering if you can speak to that disconnect um, so that people can understand that this is not a moral issue. This really is an issue of a bodily autonomy that is deeply steeped in uh, class issues. Yes, absolutely. Uh, these, <laughs> these Congress people are not they actually don't live lives that have really anything to do with ours and what we experience as regular working class people. Um, you know, there are women right now in the Democratic Party who are playing the same role. They're sitting back as well because they're part of this institution, of, you know, the two party system where this is how it works. I mean, this actually isn't really about individual choices. Of course, like there are individuals who are playing a more important role, but of course, then you have their parties, which don't put pressure on them. You have these, you know, anti-abortion, well, they say they're pro-abortion, but they're not, you know, they're standing right now against abortion. Uh, senators like Joe Manchin, and then, you know, Republican women like Murkowski and Collins, um, 
you know, they are in the way and the Democratic Party isn't doing anything about it. And it's because to them, these issues aren't real. They don't experience life like we do. They aren't experiencing the same things that we do. Their actual rights are they're not on the line, Um, because if you're wealthy in this country, you can get whatever you need. They've never actually worried about, you know, being able to afford a doctor's visit. They wouldn't be worried about having to go out of state to get a procedure. They could fly to Europe. If there was no abortion accessible in this country, they could just get a jet to Europe. They don't have to worry about getting child care. They don't have to worry about getting off work if something happens to them. They will always be protected. They don't live lives like ours. This is the problem of having a system that is run on money that you cannot have, you know, that politics is also run by money, that profit and wealth is the king of everything. And even if there's no explicit rule about how rich you have to be to be in Congress, that is how it works. If you don't have huge amounts of money, you're not getting in there. And, you know, then to call this a representative government is absurd because these people don't have any idea what we go through. They don't understand the urgency of this. That's not really what they exist to do. They're not executing our needs. And the reality is that this, you know, for women across the country, hundreds of millions of women, this is a very dire. I mean, it could not be more dire, actually, because what this is saying is that, you know, if you get pregnant without abortion protections in place, you could be forced into motherhood and that will change your life. I mean, that really decides that you don't have control over your body for nine months and then you don't have control of your life because you now have a child that you didn't have a choice in. And, you know, there's no support for mothers. There's no support for children in this country. And so it really is a tremendously life altering um, thing to have a child, you know, that you weren't ready for and that you didn't want to, to take on at that time. And, you know, for working women, they can't afford to have their their right to uh, choose taken away from them. And, you know, if already women in the South have been dealing with this, the tremendous burdens that right wing reactionary legislation have placed on them. Um, And, you know, of course, they're going to be hit the hardest. But, yeah, this is this could not be more dire. And you don't get that sense from the people in Congress. And that's because it is not dire for them. Hmm. Indeed, it's not. So when this vote uh, ultimately fails because the Democrats are not, you know, they're, they're, they're not lobbying their own caucus on the importance of this legislation and uh, the Republicans put forth whatever they uh, have for a reproductive choice act. It's it's actually called that. Uh, Collins and Mikowski gave their own proposal uh, to codify role and they call it the reproductive choice act, which they say would prohibit states from imposing what they call an undue burden on the ability of a woman to choose to terminate pregnancy pre-viability, but uh, also allow states to keep other restrictions in place, and that's a concern. But 17 abortion rights groups this week said that would not protect the right to abortion. So that there's the devil is always in the details. So when this vote fails and the Supreme Court uh, moves toward issuing the final version of that leaked 
draft decision on overturning Roe versus Wade, what happens in the states? For all of these people that the Democrats are saying to rush to the polls, what is the reality for people in the states when Roe versus Wade is actually overturned? Is there any state-level legislative remedy to protect a woman's right to uh, her own bodily autonomy. And and then I, I think I have to ask uh, Lillian, is there anything that the president can do on an executive uh, order level that he, of course, is not going to do? Yeah. So if the Supreme Court uh, or when the Supreme Court issues their decision, if it uh, does indeed look like the draft opinion that we've seen and it overturns Roe, there are 26 states that already have trigger laws in place or would quickly act to uh, push through laws that would uh, eliminate abortion rights. And um, that means that in 26 states, uh, which means the vast, not the vast, but, you know, the majority of women in this country would immediately have uh, lost their right to abortion. And, you know, clinics would be shuttered. Etc. And then we also know that the the right wing that has been building this, you know, this is really like the pinnacle of what they have been building for decades. Um, they are organized. They are very uh, systematic. They would be pushing through legislation, you know, wherever they can in the country. This would be their campaign. And so, what we really then we have the Democrats saying that women need to wait. In, need to wait until November and vote in a stronger Democratic majority. Um, but we can't wait until November because this is what is already in place to happen immediately when Roe, uh, if Roe is overturned. And so what we really need to do right now is um, demand and build a movement that demands that, you know, there is action from Congress from Biden, from these Democrats who say they stand with us, but, you know, have not done anything um, that actually addresses this situation. Uh, you know, they say that we they say that we need to vote so that we can protect and expand Democrat Senate majority. This is like the language that's being pushed by the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee right now. Um, you know, which is whipping votes from the public who is who is concerned about abortion rights at this time. They're utilizing that to get, you know, uh, more Senate seats. Um, but we don't need to vote to protect and expand their majority. Right now, they need to work. They need to actually work to protect and expand abortion rights. I mean, that's actually the fundamental thing that I would want listeners to hear is that we need to mobilize, we need to build and organize and take to the streets so that they understand that they need to do work. They need to move. They need to make it happen. Um, there are so many pathways to protect abortion rights right now. Um, the Democrats have this majority, and they need to actually understand that if they do not take action, then we will not tolerate a system that sits by while our rights are under attack. And, you know, without that message, we can continue to sit in this limbo and go back and forth forever. 
but you know, we really need to understand that if we can't tolerate a system that doesn't stand with us, we need to really start building power to get what we deserve. This is just just not a tolerable situation, and it's been playing out like this, um, really, and in so many different realms, right? I mean, it's not just women's rights, but this is what happens to all fundamental rights. But yeah, we can't sit back and tolerate this anymore. Absolutely. We have to fight back when all of our rights are under attack. But we are out of time for this segment. Want to leave it here. Want to thank Lillian House so much for joining me. And you are listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukemont, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about an upcoming summit between the United States government and leaders from Southeast Asian countries. And we're happy to be joined for this conversation by K.J. No, a scholar, educator and journalist focusing on the political economy and geopolitics of the Asia Pacific. And he's also a member of Veterans for Peace and senior correspondent with Flashpoints on KPFA. K.J., thanks so much for joining. Thank you so much. Uh, Pleasure to be with you. Absolutely glad to have you on to talk about this upcoming U.S. uh, Asian, it's A-S-E-A-N summit that is uh, scheduled to be held um, later this month between the U.S. government and the leaders of Southeast Asian countries. This will actually be, I think, the second summit since 2016. And there's a lot of uh, uh, tension uh, in this summit, not least of all because of the U.S. involvement in the proxy war in Ukraine and how that is impacting uh, countries around the world, certainly uh, the Southeast Asian countries, but also because the nature of this summit, KJ, seems to be that the U.S. wants to pressure some of the Southeast Asian countries to pick a side uh, between the U.S. and China uh, in their economic and trade deals. So I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about this summit, why it's important, and what we should be expecting to hear from some of these Southeast Asian countries to the U.S.'s proposal to choose or else. You're absolutely correct. This is all about pressuring the ASEAN countries to pick a side. As we know right now, the U.S. is waging a proxy war in the Ukraine against Russia. But ultimately, the final goal is China. This is essentially... um, you know, a historic moment uh, where the apex predator is trying to hold on to the apex of the system, and it's seeing that uh, the the ground underneath itself is foundering. Uh, 
And so it is trying to marshal up or rally up a policy of proxies in Asia against China. This is a continuation of the uh, Pacific pivot started in 2008-2011. And essentially what is on the agenda here is to try and corral the ASEAN nations into joining the United States Indo-Pacific strategy, in particular, the Indo-Pacific economic framework. The uh, IPEF is really the the continuation of the original Trans-Pacific Partnership. If you recall, the pivot to Asia had three arms. There was a diplomatic uh, and geostrategic arm. There was an economic arm, which was the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, And then there was a military arm, which was air-sea battle. It's the military doctrine of the uh, pivot to Asia. And uh, Trump discarded the Trans-Pacific Partnership because he was thinking purely in mercantile terms. But uh, the U.S. wants to reincorporate and re-aggregate uh, uh, the ASEAN countries into uh, uh a new type of economic block, which they're referring to as the Indo-Pacific Economic Framework, uh, which has, quote-unquote, new approaches to trade, labor, environmental standards, digital economy, free, fair, open investment, uh, and development and infrastructure. Essentially, it's attempting to do a counter to China's Belt and Road. It's trying to do uh, a counter to the CTPP. And it's trying to put back on the agenda the geoeconomic and geostrategic uh, elements of the uh, original pivot to Asia. Yeah, and I do wonder if the leaders of uh, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, uh, Vietnam, uh, and uh, uh, Cambodia, and other ASEAN countries are looking at this uh this potential uh, framework, this Indo-Pacific economic framework as something serious at all if it is intended to be a counter to uh, China's Belt and Road Initiative. I'm wondering if these uh, uh, leaders of these countries are, are coming into this summit, KJ, with the idea that the United States has nothing to counter China with other than the threat of military might? Well, I think at the end of the day, it always boils down to military threats, right? Thomas Friedman, in probably the only honest statement that he ever said, uh, was that the invisible fist requires the mailed fist. The invisible hand of capitalism requires the mailed fist of military might. And this is always the backstop. This is always, you know, the, you know, this is always in the wings. And so, yes, they're going to come to the meeting. You know, the symbolism of holding it in Washington is already uh, very, very stark and striking. But the ASEAN philosophy is one of good neighborliness and consensus. And they do not want to break their relations with China and other uh, nations in ASEAN. They don't want to be forced into a block. They don't want to splinter either. And the philosophy of one uh, of, of the ASEAN nations is one of dialogue, inclusion, 
tolerance and consensus. And the U.S. is trying to break that, but I don't think it will work. Uh, you know, the key element is that China is ASEAN's greatest trading partner. We're talking hundreds of billions of dollars. And uh, the U.S. actually has very little to offer it. Uh, the carrot is weak, and it's really the stick uh, that they will be, uh, you know, carefully uh, orienting and uh, monitoring to see what kind of threats the U.S. will bring to the table. Yes, and I wonder what uh, role the EU also plays in this potential uh, uh, trade deal that the U.S. Uh, government is trying to float to the uh, ASEAN countries. What what kind of influence does the EU have in uh, the relationship, the trade relationship between the three countries, China, the U.S., or the three, three powers, China, the U.S., and the EU? Do, does the EU have any influence at all to uh, to leverage in the U.S.'s favor, as I'm sure the U.S. would try to. You know, it does. It has some uh, leverage in the fact that, you know, the EU, especially France and other, you know, uh, white settler colonial states uh, were colonial powers in ASEAN. Uh, you know, Myanmar was colonized by the British and we still see the, you know, the horrific outcomes of that divide and conquer strategy. Uh, much of, uh, you know, uh, Southeast Asia, Indochina, as it were, was colonized by the French. And so they do have a cultural and, uh, uh, you know, soft power uh, leverage, as well as the fact that, you know, they are backstopping and backstopped by the U.S. and its military might. But we do see a fragmentation. You know, clearly China is becoming the regional pole, a regional center of gravity, certainly in matters of trade, development, technology, the Belt and Road, it is, you know, the, the key uh, center uh, uh, along which not simply relations, but development is happening. The Chinese model of development is a non-Western and non capitalist model of development. And prior to that, the doctrine had always been that if you wanted to modernize, you had to westernize and you had to become more and more capitalistic. And that is shown not to be the case. And so uh, traditionally, uh, you know, China has always been a historic uh, center of gravity. We see that shifting back. The ASEAN countries do not want to be press ganged into picking sides for the U.S. The EU is clearly on the side of uh, the United States, uh, as, as opposed to the ASEAN countries and most of Asia and Africa, which is simply not going along with the U.S. agenda, certainly not as far as uh, the sanctions on uh, the Ukraine and sanctions on Russia. And I think this is more signals that, you know, we're moving more and more and deeper and deeper into a multipolar world. Mm. And you did bring up the issue of Ukraine, and I do wonder how Ukraine will factor into these discussions. Um, as much as the ASEAN countries don't want to uh, be put in a position to choose between the U.S. and China in what is clearly another great power uh, competition, um, what 
does the Biden administration have to offer the ASEAN uh, countries as it's mired in this, this proxy war uh, that it created in Ukraine? It's it's pouring all of our resources into uh, weapons for Ukraine. How can the U.S. make any kind of trade promises with these countries when it is clearly putting all of its focus and and material into trying to weaken Russia with the obvious end goal of getting to China? Well, absolutely. First, you know, it is absolutely true that China is the end goal. China is the target. Uh, Russia is a way station, and the Chinese know that, and the Asian countries know that. Uh, the question right now is, is the U.S. going to do an ambidextrous strategy? Is it going to have a two-front war, or is it going to knock out uh, Russia first and then China? Or, or even vice versa. But the simple fact is that um, the U.S. does not have a lot to bring to the table. As I said once again, you know, China is the key trade partner of all the ASEAN countries, not simply trade itself in commodities, but also as a model of development. The BRI, the Belt and Road, is, you know, uh, helping to link all of continental Asia, but in particular Southeast Asia and Northeast Asia and Central Asia into this large interconnected logistical grid that is organically developing up uh, the infrastructure of each country for its own benefit. Now, that is something that the U.S. does not want. It cannot tolerate. But more than that, the U.S. wants to create uh, an independent supply chain as it seeks to uh, break the world into back into Cold War blocks. It wants to ensure that it has uh, a strong supply chain, which is independent of China, because, you know, when the chips come down to it uh, and, uh, you know, uh, you know, the, the war is formally or officially declared, then we will see a splitting of, uh, uh, of economic blocks. So the U.S. is trying to corral ASEAN back into its own supply chain and its own technological uh, infrastructure. And once again, the ASEAN countries uh, do not see the benefits of this. So they're trying to steer a narrow path between uh, this uh, you know, Cold War factionalism that the U.S. is trying to press on that. I think what's most interesting is the fact that none of these ASEAN leaders actually have a meeting scheduled with uh, uh, President Biden at the current moment. And so, you know, I think the U.S. is trying to do this, uh, do a soft pressure without the, you know, the hard, direct, one-on-one -on -one pressure. But we'll see. There could be, you know, quiet meetings being set up with Kurt Campbell or Jake Sullivan. Or, or Tony Blinken. Mm, definitely uh, need to continue to watch this summit, but I don't think, as you are uh, indicating, that it's going to stop the move toward a multipolar world, and that is a good thing. But we're out of time with this segment. I want to thank you so much, KJ No, for joining us. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political social and economic movements shaping the world around us. By any means necessary.
Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. And today we're talking about a new documentary chronicling the work of Daryl Lamont Jenkins, executive director of One People's Project, who we are happy to be joined by today to talk about this documentary. Daryl, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me again. It's good to be back on. It is really good to have you on to talk about this documentary. This, I think, is fabulous that your work is being highlighted. Uh, this documentary uh, called We Don't Walk in Fear premieres at Villanova University, and it chronicles the life and works of you, Daryl Lamont Jenkins, an anti-Nazi founder and head of the anti-fascist organization One People's Project. And, and it actually premiered already to a packed house at Villanova University's Connolly Cinema. So, Daryl, I want to ask you to uh, give us kind of a, an overview of the response that people had uh, to the screening of that documentary and how this documentary got started. What what was the impetus for uh, your life and your work being chronicled? Well, I, I, I played to, like I said, the pack house, like you said, the pack house. And um, it was a lot of um, people that were curious about um, what it is, um, everything, what was going on in the world today and how it is we are going to fight it. And they saw this documentary, this new documentary, as more or less a blueprint in many respects. It, beca- it was something that um, the school wanted to do for a number of years now. Um, it was um, put together by a um, student group that's um, a student group that whose classes focuses on social justice. And for a number of years, its professors, their professors, wanted to. Um, spotlight me in one of their productions. And that's exactly what they were able to do finally <laughs> um, this year. So um, so we started this in, I believe, August, and we were done by about, um, actually, um, April. I mean, it was so funny looking um, at some of the footage, and it was only from maybe a couple of days before the premiere. They were working on it pretty much to the day. You know, so it was um, it was great to see um, some myself being my story being put out there, but also um, it was even better to see the message being put out there. It, that was the most important thing about the entire thing. Yeah, and I think the message that uh, the documentary conveys is particularly important in the current climate in this country and certainly around the world as uh, right-wing forces are coalescing to revive or, or I should say, strengthen uh, global fascism. We're seeing this in the United States. But I think that what you provide in your work uh, exposes the fact that fascism exists in the United States. So I'm wondering if you can speak to that a little bit, how the documentary does reveal that you you are pretty much being the head-on confrontational uh, point person for identifying and calling out these fascist elements in this country and why that's so important right now. Well, what the documentary does is show people just how much 
how much the fascist elements have um, more or less maintained a stranglehold on today's society. Never mind the societies of the past, but today's society. And it does show how we can all beat that back. I mean, shows the kind of work that I've done, shows the kind of people that I have been working with, shows how we can um, pull people out of those elements to try to change their lives into being more productive. And um, it kind of like shows the building blocks of, as it stands with me, it shows the building blocks of um, how I was able to um, go from point A to point B throughout my life. You know, and it wasn't always just about um, just like fighting this fight. I mean, when you talk, I always said that, you know, I started this when I was a kid. And you look at some of the old comic scripts that I used to write in this um, in this uh, documentary. It's only 35 minutes long and they put a lot into it. And you see comic strips where I am actually showing where um, uh, um, my concerns back then about social justice. And I wasn't really as astute as I am probably today at 53 as I was when I was 11. Um, but I was aware. I was very aware. My parents were responsible for that. And they play and they figure in greatly in this. My mother was interviewed. My sister was interviewed. My father passed on um, about 11 years ago, but he's he's still in the um, documentary as well. I think the people I think folks are going to get a lot out of it. I think folks are going to get a lot out of it. Yeah, one of those things that I think people will get out of it is something you just mentioned about how how we can pull some people out of these fascist movements. I'm wondering if you can speak to that uh, part of the documentary a little bit, because there are some stories about particular people who you have uh, shown to have just that kind of experience with. So, you know, what how, how does how does that play out? Well, this documentary focuses on one that a lot of these things that I've done in the past haven't really spoken about. This woman named Erica Hardwick, who um, who's actually become one of my closest friends. And she is interviewed. We went down to Bluefield, West Virginia, where she lives. And she was interviewed about her experiences as um, as a white nationalist organizer, a huge one um, in, uh, in a group called the National Alliance, and how she became... T- how she came to be, as I said, one of my closest friends. We were even roommates at one time. Uh, it was, uh, and and it does show you where she has gone, where she was, and where she has gone, where she's been, where she is today, and how we are together with each other. And I think one of the important things for myself is that I always try to tell people, um, let's try to pull them out. Let's try, um, let's try to recognize the humanity. Let's help them recognize their own humanity. And, um, but for me, it's also about, let's recognize how good a person that, um, good a person they are once, once, once they get out. I mean, one, and the reason why I have to say that three times is because there's a yin to that yang. Some folks don't want to get out, and then we have to handle it the other way. And that's unfortunate. But I am, and as I said in the um, documentary, I am a father's son. And my father will give you those chances. He was a drug counselor. My father will give you those chances to turn your life around. But if you don't, he's moving on to the people that will. And I have to have that same attitude when I'm out there. So I'm happy in the case of Erica that um, 
we are who we uh, we are together. We're friends, and we're the closest friends. And but that's unfortunately not always the case. But I always look for it to be the case. Yeah, you know, I'm really glad that you made that distinction. That that you you pointed out that you know, look, we, we give people the opportunity to do something different with their life. But if they don't take it, then we have to deal with those people the other way. And I think that is an important part of this conversation uh, about how to rehabilitate or offer rehabilitation uh, for people who are in these kinds of fascist movements that, you know, it's not all, you know, fluffy, uh, you know, all, all love and, and know that there is, there's a chance for redemption, but if you don't take that chance for redemption, then we have to deal with you as in, in the situation you choose to continue to be in. So I appreciate you uh, making that distinction. And Daryl, you did mention your mom, which is something that I think is very important and touching. And it's the connection to your mom that the title actually comes from. So what, where, how does your mom play um, in the, not just the title of the documentary, but in the work that you do, your life's work now that has been chronicled on film? Well, I got to remember, my mother never came alone. I mean, my dad was there, too. And the two of them were responsible for helping us, creating the environment that helped us, my um, my brothers and sisters, to become the adults, to become the people that we are today. And their focus was always education, you know. And I always tell people that, um, you know, they had us all knowing how to read by about two years old, at least recognizing words and things like that. And my mother makes the point that I spent a lot of time in Dan just reading the encyclopedias, you know? So it's kind of like, I look at my mother as one of the, and my father as um, the reasons why I was free enough to do the work that I am doing today because they was able to remove us from, a, they was they were able to, and, and it's important to note that a lot of people aren't able to, and it's for them we fight as well. But they were, they had the ability to pull us out of a lot of the, um, away from the roadblocks that normally are in the way of black men, women, and children. So, you know, I love the fact that my mother, also my mother is, deeply rooted into the church. She's the mother of the church over here in um, Perth Amboy, New Jersey. And um, she's one of the mothers, I should say. But she was able to, and she's also a teacher. So when she, it was funny because she did the Q&A after the film was shown. She's the only one that got an applause line. <laughs> Me and my sister were on stage and we were laughing about it because it's like, mom just controlled the audience. Mom just captured the audience, I should say. And that's what we grew up with. They had, she had them hanging on to every word she said. And, and it shows you just how powerful a woman she is because her words during the interview became the title of this title of the movie. Mm. And, and there's a lot to take away from that. I think there is more to learn from my mother than you would get even from me. 
You know, she will tell you where you're at. I mean, her, her political positions are over. You're, there's going to be times when you disagree, but she would tell you she's first and foremost a child of God and a teacher. <laughs> and that's where she's going to focus. That's what she's looking at. She is not there to stir up conflict. Mm. She saved mm. that for me. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this sounds like an incredible documentary. I can't believe it's just a little over 30 minutes because it sounds like there's so much packed into it. And I know that with the work that you do when we talk to you here on this show, I know that it, it cannot encompass everything uh, that you do, but it does sound that it, it encompasses the power of the work. And it's not just work. It is really the spirit of the people that shaped you, uh, your mother and your father and your family. So where can people experience this documentary and learn this incredible, powerful uh, legacy that your parents have instilled in you so that we can continue this work uh, as well. Well, I know that they're getting ready to put them in the um, put the documentary into a number of film festivals. I'm working with some uh, folks who might even be able to distribute it. I'm going to talk with Villanova and uh, see what they want to do, and hopefully within the next couple of months, um, you'll you'll see it available to everyone. But right now, it just, right now it just looks like film festivals first and foremost. And um, I know my mother wants to um, show this to, um, to the Church Cathedral International in Perth Amboy. So um, we're going to see whether or not um, they will be willing to, um, to show it to every, to the congregation. And um, we're just going to see how, um, where it goes from here. Absolutely. I think it will go well. And I'm so glad you came and talked to us about this great documentary, Daryl. We will be back uh, for a second hour right after this. You're listening to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. by any means necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Oh, yes, folks, I am back. I have returned for yet another day. Today is Wednesday, May 11th, and we are, despite the fact that you can't see me, we are indeed live here and by any means necessary on uh, in Washington, D.C. But this is not the only way you can get in touch with us here at the show. You can call us at 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320 at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today. You can also listen to the show at sputniknews.com slash radio. Click on the plus sign and type in by any means necessary. You can also check the show out on sputnik.mave.digital and you can listen live on your radio dial at 105.5 FM and 1390 AM in the Washington, D.C. area from 2 to 4 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. And despite there being no video, we are indeed streaming live 
on Rumble right now. Rumble.com slash C slash B-A-M necessary. The chat, though, is indeed live. And remember, friends, at 3.20 p.m. Eastern today, you can call us at 202-521-1320. That is 202-521-1320. But wherever you are in this world and however you do it, we want to hear from you. And I am very happy to be joined today by Jeribu Hill. Thank you, Jeribu, for joining us. Jeribu is the founder and executive director of the Mississippi Worker Center for Human Rights and one of my favorite human beings on the planet. Jeribu, thanks for joining me. Thank you, Sister Jacqueline, and welcome back, my world traveler. <laughs> I, I would I, I accept that, but I don't really want to be back. But, but we're going to work on that. <laughs> so, Jeribu, while I was away in revolutionary Cuba, feeling what freedom really feels like, and watching six million workers be celebrated by Cuba in the May Day celebration, the first. Uh, since the pandemic ensued, a lot has gone on in labor organizing in this country. One thing that happened was Amazon has been up to its typical shenanigans and fired two union organizers that were tied to its first U.S. labor win. The company confirmed Tuesday that it fired Michael Kusick and Tristan Dutchin of the Amazon Labor Union on Staten Island. These folks just won and voted for the labor union on Staten Island, uh, Staten Island. But Amazon claims the cases are unrelated to each other and unrelated to whether these indiv individuals support any particular cause or group. I don't buy it, Jeribu. I think this is Amazon doing what corporate bosses in the U.S. Uh, do. They are uh, terrorizing and threatening workers uh, who have unionized with uh, dismissals, with firing. But I'm wondering how you are assessing Amazon's move in going after these two uh, employees who voted to form the labor union on Staten Island. Yes. And Jackie, thank you so much for uh, raising up this issue and, of course, sending shouts out of solidarity to the brothers and sisters in Staten Island who won their victory to have their human right to organize actually be recognized by Amazon. And Amazon still refuses. As I understand it, they are still battling to get the final finishing touches done in terms of the contract in terms of what has to happen now that the union is in place. Amazon has been up to its dirty union-busting tricks at every turn. Uh, retaliation is what you just described in terms of the two organizers, two of which have been most visible in terms of the organizing effort being fired. And we've seen this. We've seen it happen. Chris Smalls was fired also when he led the walkout uh, several a couple of years ago. And so we're seeing this trend rear its ugly head once again. It never stopped, but ebb and flow has it. So sometimes it looks like it's tapering off and then we see it coming back full 
swing full blown. When we think about Amazon, we think about the campaign at Staten Island and the victory there and how the Bessemer workers, mainly led by black women in Alabama, were pushed back from their victory. But they kept coming, and of course they're going to keep coming until they also receive a victory in their in their work location in Bessemer, Alabama. But what we've been seeing with Amazon is nothing new. With union with with uh, corporate bosses trying with everything they can to break the union, to bust the union efforts, and in many cases, if they can't do it, they've also fled to third world the countries that are colonized to work workers into the grave for low wages. So their practices are totally anti-worker, anti-people, and some of this is actionable under laws that have been enacted based on and because of worker struggles. So, for instance, the National Labor Relations Board prohibits the type of tampering with and the retaliation that workers experience when they come together in concerted efforts to join, to form unions, and have those unions recognized. There is in place a law that says you can't do that. But despite the laws on the books, we see Amazon and other corporate pigs, I'll call them, giants or whatever they're called, corporate corporate beasts like Bezos, and I don't want to demonize them too much where people think they can't be defeated, where there are some metaphysical beings that can't be touched. They can be touched, and the way to touch them is to stop spending our money with these greedy corporate bosses who hate workers. Only, the only reason they engage with workers at all is for profit. So, yes, this retaliation is actually prohibited under law, but it continues to happen every single time. And the fact that they've said it's not related to uh, these individuals being involved in any uh, labor action or union effort, the fact that they even say that is an admission that it is. Yeah, and and the the excuse that uh, Amazon is using is that uh, the firing may have been, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, arbitrary decisions that were related to Amazon's automated human resources system, which is just wild. Which that system itself has been the subject of scrutiny because it there, there's no human being that that interfaces with the employees, and this system targets. Amazon employees for failing to meet productivity goals. And, and the these productivity goals, the breakneck uh, speed with which Amazon employees have to fulfill these orders, the, the warehouse workers, has also been the subject of intense scrutiny because of the uh, injuries that Amazon workers and the poor working conditions that Amazon workers have had to endure in order to meet these quote-unquote productivity goals, basically so that you and I can get our one-day delivery of stuff we, I swear to God, do not need to be delivered in one day and probably don't need at all. Um, but, you know, what does what does it, it say that now that you know the the workers in Staten Island have unionized. Are these kinds of 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 um, 
systems in Amazon, should they be the next targets for these unions to get rid of these productivity goals, to get rid of these automated human resource systems to create a better workplace, a safer workplace for Amazon employees. I think that the firing of these two employees, if it's true that it wasn't related to, you know, retaliation, which I still don't believe, just the fact that uh, uh, these systems existed and may have played a hand in firing these two employees really does raise the, 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 the need for the union to exist in the first place. Exactly. And and also, Jackie, for unions to really, really hunker down on addressing these workplace conditions. So often the, the, the main thing that we see in terms of what unions do, of course, they lead righteous campaigns for better wages. There's no question about that. But some of these other issues concerning retaliation and discrimination, human rights abuses in the workplace, those have to be specifically and intentionally targeted by labor union officials, by labor union organizations. And there needs to be a groundswell of solidarity like we saw back in the day when the furniture workers went on strike in Nashville. The Teamsters asked me, everybody came to support their efforts. That groundswell of support has to be continued. And not only from union members, working class people in general need to be galvanized and organized around the the, the whole principle of an injury to one is an injury to all. So these particular labor practices, and we call, of course, they're violations of, as I said, at least the National Labor Relations Act their violations of that act, the type of union busting and the retaliation that we're seeing, the types of conditions that we're seeing in the workplace are actionable. And though there's no private right of action, you're not going to get any damages when you file an OSHA complaint. And of course, that's something we need to be looking into more and more and more. Since OSHA was enacted in 1970, there's been no what we call private right of action. So if your leg gets chopped off in the workplace, yeah, you're going to get your medicals through the workers' comp system for the rest of your life, right? But whatever your state's workers' comp limits are, that's that's how long you're going to get the the wage benefit. And so in Mississippi, for example, it's 450 weeks roughly adds up to eight and a half years of coverage. And after that, you don't get the 66 and two thirds of your wages. You still get your medicals if you're permanently injured, but you don't get the wages. So that has sent so many thousands of workers into poverty who were the breadwinners for their families and now find themselves in a situation where they cannot even get a paycheck because they've been cut off from workers' comp because the eight-and-a-half-year period has passed. So these are issues that unions definitely need to step up and, ha- and, and, take, and take these issues to heart because they are related to the total worker. And that's what we need to see more of. What will the total worker need in the 21st century, not just to survive, but thrive? A decent house? a decent job that pays well, a job where you're not going to get killed at work, a 
job where safety and health is enacted, laws are enforced, a job where if you are the right person for the job, you're not going to be pushed back because of the color of your skin. These are issues. And not only not only the housing issue, not only the workplace conditions issue, but also the job itself. What kind of job is it? Is it, is it a temporary job where you work for three to five to 10 years, still classified as a temp? Why? So they don't have to pay benefits unacceptable. And the union movement has to embrace these struggles in a more robust way, because this is a form of union busting. When you hire workers and you never make them full-time permanent, they don't have benefits, but they're working in a place where other workers might be union members. But these particular workers are part of the gig economy, part of the most exploitive aspects of capitalism. And they are not getting a decent wage, and they're also not getting any benefits. So these struggles that everyday, ordinary, everyday sufferers raise and wage, they have to be embraced, whether these workers are union members or not. So you've got the Starbucks workers in, in, in several cities rising up to organize right. themselves against the giant gourmet coffee owner right, coffee maker or brewer, I'll say, maker or brewer. And you've got, so you've got Amazon workers who are rising up. You've got fast food workers who need to be organized so that they can continue to rise up. Some of the early fight for 15 work was very important and still important and needs to continue. So the condition of work, and we call it the culture of work, how do you work? It's not just what you make. It's not just the job itself, but how do you work? Do you work in harm's way? Do you work under the threat of death? And we just had an incredible webinar where we featured an Amazon worker from Bessemer, an organizer, and we featured uh, an Amazon worker from two Amazon workers from Staten Island. And they told the stories about how they, they led their struggles. The Bessemer Bessemer folks talked about how they still are going to keep going. They're not going to stop. And we also had workers from the Mississippi Delta who told their stories, from fast food workers to laundry workers, told their stories as well about the, the pushback and the way that even when you gather to talk, you're often targeted and pointed out as being a problem in the workplace because you want to bring other workers together. Well, everyone under, under the sound of my voice who is in that situation, working in a non-union hellhole shop, you do have the right to assemble and congregate and make plans to ease your suffering. You have rights under certain laws that people die to make available. Workers stood on picket lines. Workers were shot on picket lines for some of these laws to be enacted. And so it's incumbent upon us to know what our rights are and to insist, if we're members of unions, to insist that our union take up these issues that may not be seen as bread and butter issues, but they most certainly are bread and butter, living life survival issues. If you go home sick, what does it matter if you've got a refrigerator full of food if you're dying of cancer? So these issues have to be seen as connected 
not siloed. It's very important that we, those of us who consider ourselves radical, consider ourselves on the left of things, away from the right of things, we need to do much more class work. We need to be much more involved in these working class struggles and find and locate those struggles in the communities that we are in, put them on platforms so that people can hear the voices of the sufferers actually speaking to their own needs. And that will ground our work. That will make us much more relevant, whether we're talking about Ukraine or whether we're talking about Bessemer, Alabama. It's all connected to this thing called oppression that we are bound and committed to overthrow. And this is why Jeribu Hill is one of my most favorite people in the world. But I want to talk some more about the pushback against this current wave of union organizing on the other side of this break, Jeribu, because I seem to remember a time in this country, I'm old enough to remember some commercials that lead me to believe that this country used to be a lot more favorable to unions than it is now. But, but I want to talk about that on the other side of this break. We're going to be right back on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. Phone lines are now open, friends, 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-320. I'm Jackie Lukeman, and I continue to be joined by Jeribu Hill. Jeribu, on the other side of the break, I was actually thinking as you were talking about commercials I used to watch on television that celebrated unions in this country. Like, I remember this commercial, look for the union label when you are buying a coat, shirt, or blouse, or something like that. And then I remember a commercial celebrating the Ask Me union and and this kind of thing. And, And I, you know, now we are in a country where unions are not only the anathema of corporate entities, but they're also the anathema to workers, to some workers. And I've never quite been able to understand how that switch happened. And I'm wondering if you can give people an insight into how the American worker became anti-union. Ah, you know... It's so good. This is such a good conversation. Absolutely. First of all, there are only about 13% of all workers in this country who have the pleasure of joining a union and being a member of a union. 80-some percent of the workforce in this country is non-union, and that is not because workers don't like unions, workers don't want to be organized, that's because there's no real emphasis. You look at the South, the emphasis on organizing in the South is almost non-existent. That's why Bessemer was so exciting. That's why we were rooting so hard for Bessemer, because it would have been the first time in many a moon that there was real organizing going on in the South. 
So back then, when you heard those slogans, there was intentionality around bringing workers in to the fold, organizing against the union-busting tactics, organizing against the brutality of the bosses. What we're seeing now, as we're seeing on many fronts that might be considered left, and I don't necessarily consider the union, the, the, the whole labor union movement to be on the left, uh, I think that would be a mistake to even classify it or categorize it in that way. There are forces within the union movement who certainly are on the left. But by and large, we see a trend of being really beholding and, and loyal to the bourgeois political parties. We see a trend of laying back and laying low when it's time to challenge the status quo. We don't see it as fierce as we used to see it. And those campaigns, but yeah, yeah, the song, you look for the union label. That was a commercial. You're absolutely right. Across nationwide television, it was on all the channels. That was the auto workers and other factory workers who were gaining ground, and the momentum was strong and powerful. You don't see that today. There also was the Don't Buy campaign that AFL-CIO started. And that Don't Buy campaign would be so helpful today because on that list should be Amazon. On that list should be Chick-fil-A, McDonald's, Walmart, all the corporations that destroy life in order to make profit should be on the Don't Buy list like back in the day. Back in the day, there were corporations that were on that list. And you knew why they were on the list because they educated the public about why these companies hurt workers and their families, and you shouldn't patronize them. That is non-existent today. There is no real push to hold these corporations accountable today. And that's the problem. The problem is that the union presence is disappearing. The culture of organizing within these plants, within these facilities that, that we often call death traps, that type of head-on collision organizing, where you're not just talking about wages, you're not just talking about how can you get along with the boss, you're actually confronting the brutality that workers face, the discrimination that workers face, the retaliation, even physical abuse that workers face. We've represented workers who were victims of attempted lynchings in the 21st century. I kid you not. We represented workers who had to go to the plant every day and see swastikas painted on the walls and Klansmen drawings on the walls. This went on in one plant for decades without anybody addressing it. And with a supervisor that we deposed, when we showed him the notice that said, if you are concerned about any of these issues, please call the number. And when I asked him, well, you saw the graffiti on the walls. Yes, I did. I said, and did you call? No, because I wasn't concerned. Well, that's what this very, very racist white union, not union, no, no, boss said, that he did not see it as a threat to himself. Now, he's a supervisor who's supposed to be looking out for those workers that are in his charge. But he didn't see it. He didn't see any responsibility at all. And that type of deafening silence is when workers are being treated the way they're treated and their lives are being threatened. That's unacceptable 
in a place where there are 16 craft unions. Unacceptable. Those issues have to be on the table, have to be in the contract. The language of the contract has to speak to anti-hate crime policies need to be in place within the union contract because it's happening. Workers are being shown nooses and being threatened with being hung. Workers are having to walk in a buddy system so they won't be jumped on in the parking lot at work. These things are happening now in the 21st century. We are representing someone right now who was fired because she had a COVID diagnosis. And two days after she revealed her diagnosis, her, her husband died of COVID and she was terminated. They do not care about us. And this whole myth and legend that if we just try to work with them through these uh, work, workforce, what do they call them, uh, work, work uh, labor management committees in the workplace where you have a certain amount of workers and you have a certain amount of bosses uh, that come together. Yes, that would be, wouldn't that be wonderful? Wouldn't that be wonderful? But that's not even a utopian dream right now in the plants and facilities, laundries, small tool and die, food processing, places that workers work, that is not even a utopian dream right now. The reality is that you go to work and you don't know if you're going to come home or not. You go to work and you don't know if when you look at your paycheck, you worked overtime, but you were paid straight time after your 40 hours. And the law, the Fair Labor Standards Act law says, that if you're an eligible worker and you work beyond 40 hours for every additional hour, you should be getting time and a half. Who's going to enforce it? Who's going to stop these wage stealers from taking away the livelihood of workers when they work into the ground 12, 15 hours a day, 60 hours a week, and don't get the excess in time and a half? It's illegal. People need to know what their rights are, but we need to be more forceful about our movement work so that we address these issues facing the masses of our people and the masses of poor people in general. But black people disproportionately suffer under these anti-labor schemes, under these unfair labor practices, under the laws of the, the, the workplace laws of retaliation. And why do I say workplace laws? Because they get away with retaliating, like these two workers that you just mentioned, Jackie. They get away with, with dismissing and rendering it silent workers who dare to step out and organize. And so we're saying to everybody who is engaged in this type of struggle from Starbucks to to Amazon, to Walmart, wherever there are struggles being waged, we're, we're saying there has to be concerted and organized support, organized solidarity for these actions. We have to consider that you can order your stuff directly from the vendor. You don't have to go to Amazon. That's what I'm doing more and more and more. I'm trying to just make sure if there is a way to order directly from the company itself, and that's what you need to do. 
and make them understand that they are not indispensable. They are not indispensable, but the lives of workers are indispensable. And we need to just really, really make sure that we're not part of the problem by supporting these corporate rogues when there are alternatives to supporting them. And I'm not mad at you if you look and you look and you try and there's nothing to do but but order from Amazon. I'm just saying more and more I am finding a way not to deal with Amazon. Now, people send me stuff through Amazon, but more and more and more folks are not getting packages from me that come from Amazon. Precisely. And see, what we need to focus on in the United States in order to be in solidarity with workers is to break our dependence on this thing called convenience. It's like we we like having, we live in this instant microwave kind of environment where now we want everything right now when we want it. We don't want to wait. Uh, you know, we, we like having a Starbucks on every corner. And honestly, I don't understand why, because Starbucks coffee is legit not good. I do not understand what people are so excited about, about Starbucks coffee. It tastes like burnt roasted beans. I don't know how these people convinced Americans that Starbucks coffee was good, but they hoodwinked y'all on that stuff. But I mean, we play into celebrating the the corporate bosses of these behemoths like you know like we we celebrate Jeff Bezos for you know going into space and Elon Musk for going into space and and you know what's his face uh, uh Schultz for doing his little fake uh racial social justice thing that he did with Starbucks a couple of years ago in the midst of the uh, uh uprising against uh racist police terrorism uh a few years ago and and we let these people off the hook for the way they treat their employees because their employees or at least their business model provides us a convenience that we act as if we can't do without but right. it really does bother me that people won't even try. I mean, I will admit, Jeribu, it was hard for me to let go of Amazon Prime. It was, I was like, I how, how? But you know what? I, I, I have found a way to watch all of my favorite shows on something other than Amazon Prime, right? And and I feel like a part of this this struggle to unionize, to rebuild unionized America is on the consumer, not not necessarily on the worker, but it's on the consumers who give these corporate monopoly bosses, because that's what they are, a pass because they provide through their business model, through their exploitative, inhuman, uh, uh, harmful business model, a service or a product that we love so much that in our minds we think we can't do without but it wasn't too long ago, Jeribu, that we were fine without them people and their and their things and their bad coffee. So I think that a part of this is we, the American consumer, have to break our cycle of independence uh, of dependence rather with these brands and their and their business model and their quick, cheap, well, not even necessarily all that cheap stuff. No, you're absolutely right, and it is incumbent upon us in our organizing to point those things out to consumers, right? To let folks know how much they are contributing to the harm 
of their people. They need to know that. And yeah, guilt tripping is a good organizing tactic. It really is. If it's necessary to guilt trip people, to get them to see how bad it is that we are continuing to support these agents of oppression. We're, we're supporting them in our own way. How does that happen? You know, some people say, oh, no, I'm not. I'm not doing that. I don't I don't support what they're doing. Well, but if you don't consciously conduct yourself in the way where you do your own personal boycott, okay? You do your own personal boycott. You don't you don't look at the fact that the beast is all powerful. You look at the fact that one by one we could chip away if there were concerted efforts. If, for example, everybody decided on one given day, maybe the first day of Black History Month, on that day, February 1st, in honor of the two workers who were literally crushed to death in a garbage truck, a compactor, on February 1st, 1968, the two workers that were crushed to death during the uh, strike the, that led to the infamous I'm a man strike. If we on February 1st decided on that day, nobody would go to Walmart for one day. Can you imagine the backbreaking experience Walmart would have? I'm not saying it would crush the multi-billion trillion dollar organization, but it would send a powerful message to them about the low wages, about the retaliation, about the lock-ins. They literally lock, lock workers in. Workers can't get out at night. That was going on a few years ago. If that practice is still going on, I'm not surprised at all. If, one, if we decided on February 1 that nobody would go to Walmart and we just sent that out over the airways and over the whatever platforms we had on this day, the first day of the official celebration of Black history, and we know we reject that, that short month being Black history. We say 365 days. But on February 1, that's also Langston Hughes' birthday. So on that day, if we decided that we were not going to go to Walmart just for that day, and we got the unions to publicize it and, and use their platforms and newspapers and websites and their access to workers to push it, can you think how powerful that would be? That would absolutely send a powerful message to the Walton family, to the, uh, uh, what's his name, Ed Schultz or, or whatever his name is, who is the CEO of Starbucks. It would send a powerful message to uh, uh, Jeff Bezos. And it is something that is so easy for us to do, but we have to organize to do it. But I, I want to talk about something else that I think would send a powerful message to these corporate monopoly bosses on the other side of the break. We'll be right back with Jeribu Hill on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik. So please stay with us. By Any Means Necessary. Welcome back to By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. I'm your host, Jackie Lukeman, sitting in for Sean Blackman. And as always, we're your guide to connecting the political, social, and economic movements shaping the world around us. 
Phone lines are still open, friends. 202-521-1320. That's 202-521-1320. I, Jackie Lukeman, continue to be joined by Jeribu Hill. And Jeribu, uh, we've been talking about organizing, labor organizing the whole hour, and we just talked about a one-day boycott if we consumers did this, of all of these corporate uh, uh, monopoly uh, brands, what the, the kind of message that would send to these people that not only do the workers want to organize, but the consumers, the people who literally make their profits, want workers to have better working conditions uh, on, in, in these environments. But another thing I think that would be very powerful is if the president of the United States, who campaigned on being pro-labor, pro-union, he was a union guy, I believe that's what he said on the campaign trail uh, at a, an event that was uh, uh, hosted by a union in Delaware, I believe. And he talked about his family, his father being a member of the union and blah, blah, blah. But now when uh, Christian Smalls, president of the new Amazon labor union, asked President Biden to press Amazon leadership to recognize the union and to begin collective bargaining, what was Biden's response? He expressed general support but he didn't come out and definitively say, you know what, Mr. Smalls, you're right. I'm a union guy. I recognize the importance of labor unions. I am going to make it clear to Amazon, to Jeff Bezos, that he needs to recognize this union. And then if he doesn't, then every federal contract that the, that the United States government has with Amazon, we're snatching them. If the Biden administration, and that includes Kamala Harris and their labor secretary, Martin J. Walsh, um, if they were serious about supporting these uh, renewed union efforts among these young labor organizers, I think they would have said that. But what did they get in response? Expression of general support, which is noncommittal to me, which means they're not going to do anything to force these corporate bosses to recognize these unions and do anything differently. So, Jeribu, what does this say when a, a, a Democratic candidate can campaign on being pro-union, but when the young folk, in particular, the young Black folks specifically, successfully organize labor unions in their formal workplaces? Because let's not forget that Christian Smalls was fired for union organizing from Amazon, from from the Amazon warehouse, the, the the best that union guy Joe Biden can give them is general support, and and not a concrete plan of action. Yes, we will back, we will back you, we will support every union that is formed in any corporation in this country. Yeah, I'm glad you I'm glad you raised it because. One of the things that we as black people are going to have to come to terms with is that nobody is for us. Talking about black working class, black suffering mass, nobody is for us. And you know how many times we've elected Democratic presidents, our vote was the thing that pushed it over the top. And that's the same thing that's true right now with Biden. He's enjoying his victory because of black folks in every corner of the United States and specifically in the southern region. But time and time again, 
We have put all, our all into electing these Democratic presidents. And we say when the Democrats come in, oh, we got the White House. Well, we don't have the White House. We need to face facts. This is an issue of a lack of accountability, broken promises that we have been the victims of for so long. And yet and still, we continue to put all of our eggs in one basket. We won't even consider that there are other possibilities. We won't study other models across the world where you have several political parties within a parliament. And here we have two political parties that, except for the blip of, of Barack Obama winning, have been always run by white men. And this country was founded on the rape and plunder and kidnapping. And no one talks about that. It's an unprosecuted kidnapping that brought us here. And no one talks about how our lives are forever impacted by the way we came to this country. And so we're the ones who often cast our vote. And we say, and I say it too, along with everyone else, I can't, I can't touch the screen for a Republican. My goodness, I can't do that. Of course I won't do that. But the question then becomes, if we all agree on that, and I think we do, the question then becomes, what are we going to demand from others that we will vote for? What are we going to demand? Are we just going to be in some permanent heyday where, oh, we got Trump out? And yes, that was a righteous movement. It was an anti-Trump movement. It was not pro-Biden and Harris. It was an anti-Trump movement. And the referendum was from the people that said, this monster has to go. And that's what happened. But now we're seeing a relaxing, no attention paid to the issue of the living wage. When will that come up again? It certainly was pulled out of the stimulus packet. Has it been brought back? What's the question around the living wage provision? And $15 is not a living wage. So you're starting really with something that has to be a stepladder to a real living wage, but starting with $15, at least start with $15. But we don't want the lease. We want whatever it takes to really live, to send our kids to school, to pay for our house or our apartment, to pay for food, to take a trip with our family, to do the kinds of things that people with privilege and money do every day and take for granted. We deserve the same amenities and support. We deserve that as human beings. It's not something that we don't deserve, but the rich and the greedy will have you think, oh, you didn't work hard enough. Well, you know, the history of work in this country is a strange history. Some people worked for nothing, by the way, and others made the profit. And that is still true today. You go into these factories who's on the line processing that delicacy you call catfish. Black workers, who's in the office, typing and filing and answering the phones and making the decisions, white people. We are still so Jim Crowed up in these workplaces and in our communities. And that's why we have to look at other models. We cannot just look to the Democratic Party. We cannot just look to the Democratic Party. We have to make sure they understand that this issue of accountability, 
is a bread and butter, a life and death issue. And what, what do you think about that? What are you going to do to address the Bezos and other criminals running corporations? What are you going to do to address them? Are you really going to invoke, invoke some sanctions on them which need to be done? Are you really going to call for widespread union organizing, a living wage for everybody? Are you going to really do that? My answer is no, because both of the ruling parties not only endorse, but live and breathe capitalism. They believe in those fundamental principles where the few are so very, very rich and the masses are so very, very poor. They don't have a problem with it. You remember when Elizabeth Warren said she was proud of something about being proud to be a capitalist. And I'm yes, and, yes indeed. They go out and say I misquoted her. But she said something to that effect. And there were progressives who were voting for her. They said, I can't believe she said that. I said, I can't believe that you are supporting her platform anyway. You know, but it's that type of revelation and the revelation of those who get support from Israel during their campaigns. We'd be surprised and shocked at the numbers of politicians who get money from the state of Israel under the promise that they will continue to endorse the genocide of Palestinian people. They will continue to endorse the genocide of people who look closer to them than the oppressors who are asking them to do that. So in order for us to really have some change, and I've been thinking about this a lot because I, I see the small scale of our work and, and how we try to go big and we, we're not able to go big because we don't get the kind of support that we need to get. We also need to get more support from sister organizations who need to put hundreds of workers on screen or on the radio listening to what your show, Jackie, supporting the truth that you all bring forth, or the Mississippi Worker Center's webinars that are some of the only webinars that actually pay tribute to the working class. I'm not saying we're the, we are the only, I said some of the only organizations that put on blast issues concerning workers and their fight, their righteousness, human rights fight, the dignity and justice in the workplace. And those are issues that we need to make sure we mobilize and galvanize our organizations toward, you know, filling up the, the slots, okay? It, it, so you see hundreds of people on screen, hundreds of people in the chat, right? Instead of 50 or 60 people, you see hundreds of people. These are our issues. Why are we not more supportive in terms of solidarity and unity efforts why are we not more supportive of each other's efforts? So that's my that's my uh, my mantra is that we have to really double down on solidarity and unity and black freedom and black love. We got to double down, double down and let that be our lifestyle. Let that be our work every single day. We're crisscrossing and connecting and making sure that everybody knows we are not deaf, dumb and blind to the connections. We know the connections. We live those connections every day. And you know what, Jaribu? I, I think what you're talking about speaks to something that I feel like I felt and heard over and over again in Cuba, believe it or not. This, this idea that we are not alone. 
like people there, there's a hashtag out there that 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 says uh uh Cuba no uh esta a solo. I think that's right. Cuba is not alone. And I heard from people in Cuba who were so in in so appreciative of folks from around the world coming uh to learn from them certainly, but coming to support them in solidarity. And it's that idea that workers in this country, in the South, particularly Black workers and poor workers and indigenous workers and women workers, have to be supported by other networks of organizations, of of organizers, of activists, so that people do not feel like they are alone. Because when you describe the kind of retaliation <clears throat> that workers are still experiencing in the workplace today, now that sounds like some 1954 Norma Ray kind of stuff to me, but this is happening right now. And why do people not come forward and report that it because they feel like they're alone? And they're terrified of these people for their life and their safety. So, I mean, can you speak to that? Just the importance of of being able to let these workers know that they are not alone. Yes, and and and, and see, solidarity is is really a fundamental principle of organizing. You have to see the connections between your work that you're doing, between your mission and your issue and others around the world. I I know that it's a point of privilege for those of us who are able to travel outside of this belly of the beast. That gives us perspective and the clarity that we're not alone and that there's worldwide suffering, you know? So that, that I wish, I wish we were free. I wish we were free, really free to travel the way we should be able to, that every working class person could go and see a Cuba, could go to Mother Africa and see our brothers and sisters there and what they struggle against, how they struggle against the forces of U.S. imperialism and other bodies of power that continue to rape Africa. I heard Bill Gates on the other night, he was talking about uh, how Africa is vulnerable. And I said to myself, yeah, because of you, you know, because of you and your ilk. That's what makes Africa vulnerable, all these pimps across the world, seeing it as fertile ground for continuous exploitation. And we have to be, we have to connect with and associate ourselves with our people, you know, and with with what they are actually going through, what they're actually going through. Not some, not some mythical struggles, but some real struggles that people are going through today. And it's, so it's important, yeah, to see that we're not alone, but to also not isolate ourselves. So even if we're not able to travel, we still can, you know, because of all the different search engines and Google and not everybody. Of course, there's a lot of people caught up in the digital divide. That's why you need old-fashioned organizing, where you can sit in a room in a circle together and talk about there's this country called Burkina Faso. And there was this leader who was not afraid of the U.S. or monopoly capitalism or imperialism. And he spoke out against it, Thomas Sankara. He lived and breathed to fight against U.S. imperialism. Maurice Bishop, all of our ancestors here in Mississippi, Fannie Lou Hamer, they broke 
the back of the system every day while they lived. And what's going on to now? You can't even tell sometimes where we are in terms of our left formations. What is happening with us? Why aren't we more intentionally attacking the status quo? Why are we in a mode now where it almost seems like if we can't beat them, join them? And I'm not saying people are joining up with the oppressor, but when you don't organize, when you don't actively resist, and that's the result. They win because we are not arming our people with information. And, 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 and I'm not even saying that folks don't know about to put this on their neck. Invariably, when we go out and we talk to people in the communities during our porch runs and porch drops, and, and we say to them, you know, it's the dog on shame that you got to get a Thanksgiving food box from the Mississippi Worker Center in the richest country in the world. And invariably, someone will say to me, you are so right. People know the source of their suffering, but they don't know that they have help. They don't know that they have support. They don't know if they got a big brother or a sister who's going to step in for them in an unfair fight. And that's what they need to know. They need to know that there are those. And, and so for those of us who are genuine in our efforts, who speak truth to power, really speak truth to power, look at the times when you're marginalized, even in so-called left formations. Look at the times when you're left off of a program and you, you're thrown into a little small workshop when other people get to speak to thousands and are not talking about chipping away at the status quo. Safe and sound is what you're dealing with. And the more we think about the independent struggle that we need to wage, the independent movement we need to have, the more we know we have to be sure that we have our own platform. That's why there's a Southern Human Rights Organizers Conference and a Black Alliance for Peace, because we have to have our own platforms. This radio station, this work is a platform for liberation. We have to have, we have, to have them. We need them desperately. Absolutely. Absolutely. And if people want to get connected with the Mississippi Worker Center for Human Rights, you can go to their website, msworkrights.org. You can check that webinar out there. It is amazing. We have got to organize, to fight, to win, and we can win, people. A better world is possible, but we have to organize and be in solidarity with each other to do it. It is possible. We have to not give up and we have to fight like our lives depend on it because they do. I want to thank Jeribu Hill so much for joining us on By Any Means Necessary on Radio Sputnik in Washington, D.C. We are done for today. We're going to have a whole new set of interviews tomorrow. Until then, y'all, be really good to each other and to yourselves. Peace. By Any Means Necessary.